Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. This is your host and producer, Randy Kim. I hope you're staying safe during the COVID-19 pandemic. In continuing the second season theme of 1975, which marks the 45-year anniversary of the end of the Vietnam and Laos Civil War and the beginning of the Cambodian Khmer Rouge rule, I interview Kevin Yang, a second-generation Hmong American from the Twin Cities. Kevin is a multidisciplinary artist, which includes being a spoken word artist and filmmaker. In this interview, Kevin shares his family's migration journey from Laos to Minnesota. He talks about his upbringing in Minnesota and his relationship with the Hmong community there. In discovering his family's refugee journey, Kevin became inspired to write and perform as a spoken word artist as a way to document his family's history and his own personal challenges with assimilation. He also shares a personal poem he wrote called Come Home for this episode. Tune in and listen to this wonderful conversation that we shared. Also, special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnamese-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or t-shirt and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or follow them on Instagram at Lawrence and Argyle or find them on their Facebook page. Hello, everyone. This is Randy from the Bun Me Chronicles podcast here. So I am joined today uh, with Kevin Yang. So Kevin, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Yeah, so I'm really excited to have you on. So recently, uh, we connected um, through Facebook to a mutual friend of ours, uh, Peter, uh, who uh, was from Chicago, then uh, lived up in uh, the Twin Cities. So uh, definitely want to send a big shout out to him for connecting uh, me to uh, Kevin today. So uh, Kevin, I was wondering if you would like to uh, introduce yourself. For sure, absolutely. Thank thank you so much for having me on, Randy. And shout out to Peter, too. my name is Kevin Yang. I use he, him, his pronouns. Um, I was born and raised in the Twin Cities, Minnesota, and I am a practicing artist. Um, I particularly do spoken word, and I'm also a media maker, but um, I am a second generation Hmong American, and I, I'm also uh, deeply passionate about organizing with my community around issues uh, with the Southeast Asian community, also a lot of issues um, with gender justice and um, do my best to dismantle the patriarchy. Yeah, that's amazing. And I'm so glad to have you on and hopefully we'll be able to, to talk about um, some of these uh, important work that you're doing uh, for the community. So um, before I begin, uh, for this season's, uh, for this podcast season, I am focusing on the year of 1975, which is now the 45 year mark of the end of the Vietnam and Laos Civil War, and also the beginning of the Khmer Rouge. So I have been interviewing folks of the 1.5 second generation uh, to reflect back on what their year means for them, even though uh, for most folks that I've talked to weren't born in that year. But I asked them to think about what that year holds for them and for their family. So I was wondering if you could share your experience of what does the year 1975 mean to you when you hear of it? Yeah, absolutely. When I hear the... When I hear 1975, I immediately think of, of, of the war in Southeast Asia, of, of particularly my, my parents, my mother and my father. 
um, who were both living in Laos at the time um, of, of, of the war. And I think a lot about their journeys of how they got to the United States um, and about how the different paths that they took to get here. Um, I know that my mother, um, her father, my grandfather was the leader of a clan in, 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 in Laos. So her journey to the United States um, was very different from my father's. Um, she often speaks to me about uh, jumping on a van and crossing the river and then um, getting to the refugee camps and then coming to the, to, to the United States in, in 1979. But for my father, um, he had a much different journey. So whenever I think about 1975 or, or just that period of time in general, I, I think of the war. Um, my father, um, he left his village with, with his family. Um, he had lost his father at a younger age and um, his older brother had served as sort of like the leader of his family. Um, and on the journey from Laos to Thailand, trying to cross the, the, the border, um, he actually lost his mother um, to attacks from, 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 from yeah, he, he, he lost his, his, his own mother and it was a very, very traumatic event for him. Mm -hmm. And both my mother and my father were, were relatively young, um, probably in elementary or, or middle school when they were crossing the river. So mm -hmm. um, just trying to put myself in the shoes of my parents who uh, faced so much trauma at such a young age. I, I can't even imagine that in order to, um, to find safety, in order to survive. So um, when I hear of 1975, that's the first thing that immediately jumps to my head is the traumatic history that um, both my mother and my father uh, were a part of in order to get to the United States. Mm, thank you for sharing uh, a part of your family's history and also um, the traumatic journey that they had to um, cross through to get to where they are. So much has been talked about with the Vietnam War, especially for a while, it was through the white American soldiers' lands, right? Mm -hmm. And then um, in our history books, growing up, uh, and for me in the 90s and early 2000s, there was maybe less than a chapter of it, and it was very skewed about how the Vietnam War was talked about. Mm -hmm. um, the Khmer Rouge, the Killing Fields, was not very much talked about let alone the, the secret bombings that had happened in Cambodia uh, during the Nixon presidency. But for the Lao and Hmong community, the Lao Civil War is often very much buried. It is hardly ever talked about in mm -hmm. any discussion when it, in regards to the Vietnam War, in regards to even the Khmer Rouge mm -hmm. uh, era, which still is starting to make its way uh, now. But but for the Lao and Hmong community, what can you say about the, the challenges of when you hear, when you hear uh, so little about it on the mainstream and growing up, but also from the community, how do you think that the lack of acknowledgement in that history has affected uh, your understanding and also the community's understanding about that history? Yeah, that's a great question. You you brought up a lot of the points. Um, I feel very similarly. Uh, I mean, they called it the secret war for a reason, and it's not like they didn't hear about us because of like an accident in history. I think this was very intentional on the part of the U.S. government because what they were doing was in in a lot of ways illegal. Um, I mean, the, the statistics say. I mean, I've been to the, I've I've, I've spent time traveling in Laos. Um, I've been to the, I can't remember the name of the center, um, where they keep a lot of the history about the, the mines that are still buried in, 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 yeah. in Laos. But I mean, it was the most bombed country in the world um, for a country that was supposedly neutral, right? I mean, a lot mm -hmm. of 
the fact that we don't know our history or the history is not being recognized by uh, the United States, it's not something we read, is very, very intentional um, because of how long um, the, the United States government has been trying to hide that. Um, only recently have we been able to sort of un un unearth that. Um, but sort of the effects of my of myself, it's really caused me to be hungry to learn more about um, our own roles and, and things like that. Um, I know as a as among people, right? We use our art to keep our history. We we tell stories to one another. That's just something that we've always done in order to keep our history. Um, and it can be extremely traumatic. Um, not just talking about the war from like a um, I didn't read about Hmong people in history class in tenth grade, but like I know that my mother and father had a difficult time trying to explain what happened to them during the war with me. Um, I think for a lot of second generation Hmong kids or a lot of second generation refugee kids in general, we take like a middle school class where it's like, hey, time to learn about our history. Like mm -hmm. tell a story about like your family growing up. Uh, I know that was an assignment that I was given in like ninth or 10th mm -hmm. grade. And I remember doing an interview with 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 my parents and I remember my mother just kind of refused to, to be part of the project. She didn't want to talk about her journey. Mm -hmm. Obviously it was something that's still very traumatic and difficult for her to process. And then for my father who had a very, very traumatic journey here, um, he was willing to open up and share more of that with me. And um, it was always the kind of thing where we, we talked about it in our family and in, in, in like the periphery, but it's not something that we ever sort of addressed head on, but sitting down with my father for this assignment in order for me to get like an A in, in, in history class or whatever was the first time where it, my father and I actually were sitting down and processing his traumatic history together. And I remember it being a very, very intimate, careful conversation in him telling um, what happened and him trying to make sense of it with me. Once again, a 10th grader who's trying to make sense of the world at the time. Wow. Yeah. I can only and, imagine, yeah, I can only imagine, you know, not having, uh, not having the, the frame of reference or at least, you know, as a 10th grader, I didn't know about my own father's uh, history until 97 when Pol Pot was on, shown on live television. And that really triggered him when he started talking about what had happened. Mm -hmm. And I saw that as a turning point in how he started to really struggle with coping with that trauma of escaping from the Khmer Rouge. I was wondering uh, for your parents, when that Pandora's box was opened up, mm -hmm. um, how did it affect your relationship with your parents? And did you see part of the PSD manifesting in your relationship with them as you grew up? And maybe even before that, were you aware, how, how aware were you about their struggles before you had to write or do that interview with them? Uh, absolutely, that's a great question. I think sort of the trauma of my, my parents shows up in a lot of different ways. I, I think particularly with, my, with, with, with the way that my mother approaches the world and the way she approached parenting me and my brothers um she was a person who was very very safe who's very concerned with our safety um in all matters like she was the kind of person who like um didn't want us to join clubs at school because she wanted us to be home like in order mm -hmm. for us to be safe and that sort of thing so i mean I'll, so much of how, how she approached the world was like asking ourselves if like in this situation are we safe or, or do we have enough saved up like that kind of thing so i think <laughs> an experience like 
surviving a war really affects how you approach all things. I mean, I'm reminded of like, like like frame references like in in the United States culture, like people who survived the Dust Bowl, right? They like yeah. buried money and underneath their blankets for for years because they didn't trust that the banks could keep their money, and it's sort of like that. Mm-hmm. Like my mother surviving a war, she did everything in her power to make sure that we were equipped to survive whatever like we might be approaching, and I think that's ultimately uh, what she wanted us to see. Mm. Did you also grow up with other siblings or do you have other siblings and how was their own way of dealing with your parents, uh, especially with their trauma? Yeah, absolutely. So I have, um, I have four brothers. I'm in, I'm the middle child mm. and um, we're all very, very different from each other. Um, my oldest brother is in his mid thirties and then um I'm 27 right now. And then my youngest brother is um, 19 right now. And we're all about two years mm-hmm. apart from each other. So it sort of spans over the course of 10, 15 years, um, each mm-hmm. of us. So we, we sort of straddle a lot of different generations and we've experienced and processed like uh, the second generation immigrant experience in a lot of different ways. Um, I know that my oldest brother growing up, um, he, he hung out with like, um, a lot of folks who were—I don't know how to say it—were so like like thugs or were considered thugs or like uh, gangsters. Like that was a really big part of like Hmong reality in like the '90s and the 2000s in the Hmong community because like so much of um, of what we were doing, we, we were trying to keep each other safe, like figure things out. And my brother fell into that um, growing up. And then he became like a born again Christian. Mm, interesting. <laughs> Later in his life, yeah. Um, and then my youngest brother, he he's he's much more of a like of the generation of like the internet, and he's really into a lot of different things. But I think, for example, I one thing I think in particular his his the way he interacts with like um, like online culture and the memes and things like that was like very different from the way that I sort of interact with the world and like online communities. Um, so like all of us have a different experience with like our culture and like how we, how we understand our culture. I think how I approach it is a lot more like academically where I've been really hungry to like learn our language and to like research it and things like that. Um, and that's always been really important for me to like understand my history. It's 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 actually very interesting how our own um, our own upbringing is different from uh, our own siblings. The way they turn out. Uh, I know that, like for myself, I also like you got into writing. I got very curious about the history of my parents' struggles, and also uh, definitely more so in the last couple of years. And for my brothers, they were not as invested into this particular work and they feel in some ways distant uh, from the history, but also uh, from the community in a sense. And I'm not doing this to you know criticize them by any means, but I do mm-hmm. see this happen a lot in our own community that there's like a disconnect uh, yeah. from other younger generations or like-minded peers, siblings. But then, you know, there's always that one person in the family that has a responsibility to hold the history together and to be the storyteller to be the person to um to uh to pass that down to younger folks in our family especially when there's members that are not able to tell it to us uh tell them to know what their history looks like so 
I was wondering uh, when your own passion for writing come about and was that uh, passion for writing fueled by your uh, family's history? Yeah. Um, growing up, when I was a very young kid, I remember being very, very, very talkative. Um, I just loved sharing with everybody. I, I love <laughs> meeting strangers. I was a very, very curious person. And I think um, early on, probably around kindergarten, um, I'm the kind of person who learns very, very quickly and I also take in the energies of people very, very quickly. And I just sort of remember um, taking in a lot of the energy of um, my mother and also of my oldest brother of like a lot of fear, um, a lot of fear of the world, of like, the, like I don't know how to describe it, but like, racism living in a, in a, like a predominantly white society in minnesota mm -hmm. and like feeling very much more withdrawn and i remember feeling a lot more anxious and socially anxious a lot more shy um and we moved around a bit growing up too so it was like never really fitting in wherever i went um we grew up in south minneapolis which is like a predominantly white community and there wasn't a very large Hmong community at the time too so uh, um, like the biggest way that i understood what it been meant to be Hmong was just my friendships with my brothers and then also a few of my cousins but even with my my cousins i know that family is such an important concept in the Hmong community i didn't have a lot of extended family in in, in minnesota so a lot of it was very very isolating either just with myself or with my brothers as like these are the only people that i really communicate with or like see the world but i think the other end of it too was like through media um we played a lot of video games growing up um, i read a lot of books growing up um watched a lot of tv and movies growing up and in that way that was a lot of how I connected with the world or understood the world around me. And I think that was sort of where my like love for storytelling came from, was from sort of feeling really isolated from the rest of the world and just really wanting to dig deep and like, and like get lost in something else. Cause I, I had a pretty tough childhood mm -hmm. um, trying to figure out and process like a lot of like different traumas and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I remember just being engrossed in things like video games and movies um, mm -hmm. and really wanting to like create my own like video games and movies. And I think that's like some of where my earliest writings came from were just mm -hmm. like storylines that I ripped straight from like different video games that I was playing at the time. Um, so that was sort of, where my first love for storytelling came from, I would say, was just finding uh, like a sanctuary from a lot of the different traumas in my life at the time um, in these different stories that were so fun and accessible for me. When you were talking about traumas uh, growing up, and I know you like kind of uh, mentioned uh, the racism, you know, gr uh, living in a predominantly white community that's not uh, very that's not very monk centered uh, like other communities in many in Minnesota or in Wisconsin. I was wondering if you could share some of the experiences or at least examples of the experiences that you had to endure like growing up, especially when you're assimilating in a culture that uh, your parents uh, did not have the blueprint knowledge of right and and also the fact that you and your brothers had to take on the burden of succeeding well in school and to mm -hmm. navigate how to 
be successful, find resources to get where you need to be, which oftentimes is, is a struggle because a lot of those resources do not uh, do not reach towards uh, the Southeast Asian communities, mm -hmm. uh, which also, again, presents the whole model minority myth uh, that all Asian students or API students are successful on merit alone and when it's mm -hmm. really not true at all. So I was wondering if you can share some of those uh, struggles that you were uh, dealing with uh, growing up in your community. Absolutely. Um... Growing up, our family was poor, but I wouldn't say that we, one, one of my bigger struggles was, was, was with the poverty or anything like that. We, we, we never struggled to, to find, put food on the table or struggled to like pay for rent or anything like that. But we definitely didn't have it as well off as our, our sort of classmates did. And um, even if we were doing relatively comfortably, as I think about it, I know that um, sort of the mindset of, of my family was always like, we have to like penny pinch everything. Like we have to always think about scarcity. Um, it's It was very difficult to think about like abundance or like what it meant to thrive. I just remember always feeling that. Um, and I guess the, the biggest things that I struggled growing up was just this concept of like isolation of feeling really, really separated from like the world, whether it be like my classmates and being unable to like relate with them. Um, as I said earlier, I dealt a lot with social anxiety growing up. Mm. So really feeling like, there wasn't really anyone else there or I should feel really afraid of everyone around me. Um, I know that I had a lot of issues with my brothers growing up too, where if even within my own family, like a lot of isolation of like feeling bullied or like um, just a lot of difficult things with my family where I was just, I didn't feel like I could connect with them in, in certain ways. So a lot of that, as I said, is just the struggle with this feeling of isolation and not being recognized within my own family or like being recognized by like the society around me and like really, really hungry to have my voice heard and to be listened to, but really struggling at that. Mm. You know, it, it's something that I resonate a great deal with because even growing up for myself, I was quite mute, um, especially in the first several years of grade school. I was terrified of being around white students and I would often cry uh, as my way of it's like a defense mechanism it's my own coping to have my own privacy to have my own to be in my own isolation as I would learn because it was terrifying and also because what I've learned much later on is that my parents had so much fears of me being gone at any certain amount of time and they would start interrogating me where are you at and mm -hmm. and who do you are you who are you hanging out with and so it just starts to amplify this distrust that I would begin to have of a lot of uh, people around me and I, I kind of get the sense that that's what you were also dealing with you're you're in a school that people in a school that no one where no one looks like you and that could not understand uh, your family's culture and there was so much that you kind of had to hide yourself and and as a person like I also am a very talkative person and so when you're kind of like internalizing you um, uh, so much distrust and this paranoia then where does it manifest how what what's going to end up happening as a result of it and it's it's oftentimes a lot of the struggles that a lot of our own second generation hasn't or has a hard time verbalizing and we're still starting to see more of these stories uncover and i'm glad that you've you know shared uh part of that experience because it also makes you know me realize that this is such a common theme that we're often having to shut ourselves down just to survive just so 
that we can assure our parents that we're okay, but at the same time, you know, at what expense, right? Mm-hmm. And, and also trying to figure out a, being in a society that isn't always accessible to us. So I was, I was wondering when you started pursuing your own art, uh, when you started pursuing your own uh, writing, how supportive were your parents in having you document uh, their own history? Mm-hmm. Most definitely. I want to piggyback off um, a couple of things you said first. Yeah. Uh, yeah, growing up, I also too was a person who cried all the time. Um, <laughs> just I, I would bawl at the, at the smallest things. I was a very, <laughs> very emotional kid. Yeah. Um, I think this is sort of the same period when I was very, very talkative too, but from a very, very early age, I was taught by my brothers and, and, and by my parents to like, to not allow that to happen. Once again, I think a lot about like what masculinity. That too. Yes, like. you can't, you're not allowed to cry too. But yeah. then, you know, when I can't cry at home, then I certainly, you know, it certainly starts to manifest itself in school. Instead. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And that, that, that was really, really difficult for me. And I think it's something that I'm processing today, uh, just because I know that I struggle a lot in, in terms of um, my relationships, like thinking beyond um, like feeling happy or like feeling normal and like how I struggle with sadness, how I struggle mm-hmm. with like frustration or anger and like expressing that to like the people around me because of how burdened I feel mm-hmm. when I like put my emotions onto other people and how absolutely uh, unhealthy that can be. So I know that I process it a lot and it's not, it's like what you said, this concept of like internalization. I know that growing up, I wasn't like a skeptical person. Um, so when I felt all this paranoia, like being admitted, this, this energy of paranoia and this energy of like, um, wanting to feel safe no matter what I, I took in a lot of that and that's something I still take in today too of like really trying my best to not take risks of any kind of like the fear of being vulnerable um and those are all things that like were really 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 difficult for me to process um and something that I that I still carry with me mm. um so when you when you were talking about that that definitely definitely resonated with me um mm-hmm. In terms of, um, could you ask that question again, the, the question that you just asked? Well, I was wondering about your own parents. Mm-hmm. Um, like as you started to go into writing and in mm-hmm. pursuing your art, how supportive were your parents in, in um, letting you document their journey? And also when you needed to express this particular outlet, um, were your parents supportive of this uh, creative outlet that you were looking to uh, invest in? Mm-hmm. My parents are very supportive of my art um, ever since I was a little kid. Um, I mean, I've been writing for a very, very long time. Uh, the first time I was published was, well, it wasn't like actually published, but it was like a writing contest the first time. Uh, but it was a big deal. Was it like the fifth grade? I remember my parents being so proud of me. Um, but I never really spent a lot of time sharing my work until I was in in, in, in in high school and college, but uh, when I was in college, I had started to receive a lot of recognition for my work. I was being asked to perform at certain things. Um, I remember I was asked to do a, um, a facilitation at a college that was about two hours to the south of, of, of Minneapolis, and I, I didn't know how to, to drive at the time, and my father was willing to drive me all the way down, hang out wow. with me during the facilitation, and then um, driving back um, up to the to the Twin Cities. So 
my parents have always been extremely proud of, of my work um, and my art. Um, they've always been really proud of how um, people have recognized me for my work and how I use my art to connect with different people. And I think they also really appreciate the fact that um, that I approach this, the, the, the sort of these different subject matters um, and how I'm able to connect with, with different communities and generations of my work. So I think I've been very, very appreciative of, of my family, uh, of my parents for, for, for all the support that they, they show for, for my artwork. Um, you know, I, at multiple points throughout my life, I, I often thought about like, if I could just freelance my art full time. And I think it's natural inclination of a, of a parent to be like, oh, like, is this something that you, that you can sustain yourself? Like, are you gonna have health mm -hmm. insurance? How do I think about that? Like. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's a really big deal, right? Like, what are you going to do? Slaves under capitalism, my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Slaves under capitalism. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but even beyond that, though, I think my parents have been very supportive in helping me. Like, I mean, I, they, 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 they pretty explicitly say, like, you know, just, just find that one job that you can do for the next 30 years that you can, like, raise a family with, buy a house with. But when I say that, you know, I don't think that's necessarily the path that I'm going to take, that I'm going to be doing work that's going to be on and off, that I want to create things. And that's not often, like, a very lucrative career. They haven't been yeah. like, how dare you? Like, you should be ashamed of yourself. They've been like, oh, you know, like, we've seen how you connect with the world using your art. And if this is something that, you know, makes you happy to do, then um, you should keep doing it. Um, but also think about like your the future and your ability to like sustain your life or whatever. So they've been for, for the most part supportive, which I find really cool. I know it's, that's not always the story with with uh, artists with refugee parents. Yeah, yeah. That I mean that's amazing because uh, I know my parents would tell me that too. Although I would tell them personally that I want to have a job that I don't have to take care of having a family because I don't plan on having a family unless god forbid anything happens but mm -hmm. I, I do joke around and say that um yeah i'm gonna get a job that will allow me to sustain myself and not have to worry about the idea of ever having a family so yeah i yeah, think that's yeah. just my way of saying that i, I plan to be kind of semi-broke at some point I'll be, <laughs> and i'll be going to grad school soon so uh, that will kind of put me uh, i'll be uh, paying away uh, student loan debt for a little while <laughs> But anyways, I was wondering about your own relationship with the Hmong and Lao community over in Minnesota, because I know, uh, you know, being in Chicago, um, the Hmong and uh, Lao community isn't as present as it is in Wisconsin and Minnesota. But I was wondering about your own relationship and how have you been able to interact with the community through your art? Yeah, um, when I was in high school and in middle school, too. Well, as I said earlier, when I was in elementary school, I was never really around Hmong people um, when I was in, in, in my formal education system. The, the only Hmong people I really knew were my brothers and some of my cousins, but I didn't interact with Hmong people a whole lot in terms of, like, my social circles. And when I was in middle school was the first time I'd ever been in a setting with other Hmong students. And I, I, I was going through a lot of like internal racism of like, oh, because I, I, I knew from a very young age and I think I was nurtured by the community around me. Like, hey, Kevin, you are a very intelligent person. Like mm. you're going to go to college. Like these are all things that, these are all messages that were being sent to me by like my parents and like the education system around me. And I think when I got to middle school, it was like, a, hey, like I know I'm a very, very smart kid and I'm like going to achieve very high things. And I'm meeting these other Hmong people and we're not at like, we're not, 
like at the same wavelength mm, yeah. so like man most people are really dumb or like they're really mm. into really dumb things or like they're not into the same things that i'm in and i think um that was especially present when i was in high school a lot of the clubs and teams i joined things that i was really interested in i joined like the speech team the debate team i'm like i was in like ap classes and this is a story here all the time like the one like person of color or the one Mong person in your like ap or yeah. ib classes and about how detached i felt and at the same time like how ashamed i felt of like being a Hmong person of having to like explain myself every time like a topic came up or something like that and really wanting to distance myself from like my cultural um mm. ethnic identity um that really changed when i went to college uh, my first year in college i went to a school in saint paul um which is like the capital city of, of Hmong folks in Minnesota. This is, it has the largest population of Hmong folks um, in all of Minnesota. And it wasn't just the fact that I was around a lot of other Hmong students. It was the fact that I was meeting Hmong students who were doing a lot of really different things. Other Hmong artists, Hmong scholars. Um, and once again, moving beyond this like model minority of like, oh, I, I, I learned like, I met lots of successful Hmong people. Now I'm like proud of being, what it means to be Hmong, but it, yeah. rather it was like a, hey, like our community is very, very large and there's a lot of really beautiful and messed up elements of our community, but they're all very, very important. Um, and they all sort of deserve to be embraced and processed. And mm -hmm. here I am in that community finally processing the difficulties of, of like a first generation college student with, with other like Hmong students. So like that experience really taught me about like the beauty and the complexity of like the Hmong experience and made me really proud to be Hmong for the first time in my life. And likewise, I, I, I the first time I, when I, when I went to college was the first time I was really, really exploring spoken word as an art form and as a way for me to explore myself. Um, and art has always been a, a way for me to like approach difficult questions that are happening in my life um, or approaching difficult questions that I think society is grappling with. And all of it sort of came together, this moment of me being independent of sort of being away from like my family unit sort of and all of thing, everything that went into that of like figuring out how to live by myself, um, figuring out like my Hmong identity with other Hmong folks. Um, figuring out my artistic identity, what I was passionate about, and it all kind of came together during my first year of college, where I was able to sort of explore that all at the same time. Um, the Twin Cities is a beautiful community to be Hmong. Um, there are newspapers here you can read that are Hmong. I mean, there are events, the art community here is so strong. So I was able to learn from other Hmong artists and leaders, um, who once again helped me really embrace the, the beauty and, and the complexity of the Hmong identity. Thank you for sharing that. And I was in um, Minneapolis, St. Paul, like about a year and a half ago, almost two years now. And and it was actually the first time I was able to be in, to at least witness uh, what the Hmong community uh, looks like. And and it's it's incredibly unique because it's something that resonated with very much with the Cambodian community and also with the Vietnamese community as well, because I'm mm -hmm. both Cambodian and um, Vietnamese. And you did touch on an important topic when we talk about self-loathing, this internalized um, racism of our own culture, because, you know, we see um, us being the exception to, to our own community, because a lot of our own community members have struggled through poverty, gang violence, uh, 
high school dropouts and and there's a lot of negative stereotypes and that even so much so that even our own families kind of like minimize the importance of our own culture because mm-hmm. what they have seen is an embarrassment we, we, well we got to be more like the americans we've got to make ourselves look good and and that does nothing to uplift our own communities that does nothing to uh, build solidarity with other uh, immigrant refugee black and brown communities right mm-hmm. so you know uh, when you talk about that i think it's something that uh, resonates uh, very well because when we do reach a level of success what do we do with that success how do we use it to to uh to amplify the importance of our culture but also also giving light to the struggles that our own community is facing and how can we uh, uh, how can we give them the opportunity to uh, succeed under their own agency, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in the last couple of years, I know I've, I've actually, I know you've been doing so much uh, performance uh, mm-hmm. art and I have actually watched some of your uh, videos and also uh, poem, read some of your poems and you know it, it goes into not only the uh, the culture of the Hmong identity but also um, the assimilation the diaspora you've mm-hmm. even gone into um, anti-blackness anti-asian sentiments that uh, in your own experiences and and you've you've taken on a d- different intersectionalities of your own identity and also of the experiences that you've c- encountered. And I know that uh, I had asked you earlier, I was wondering if you were able to share one of your works. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. Um, yeah, just piggybacking off a bit before that too, of what, you're, of what you said. Um, for me, my, my art, whether that's spoken word, whether, whether that's filmmaking or whatever else I do, I think art has always been a really powerful tool in our different movements. I often see art as a practice and empathy of a way of us better understanding one another through our stories. Um, for example, you know, I obviously like if, if, if I really believe that like misogyny is messed up or like racism is messed up or something like that, I wish I could just say to you, hey, like racism is bad. And like, these are the reasons why you shouldn't be racist. And I wish like the person across from me would be like, oh yeah, Kevin, you're completely right. Like I'm never gonna be a racist person again. But it's so difficult for people to um, grapple around that. And I, I think about that a lot in terms of like a college education too, right? So often, and this is not a knock on academic language because it often gives us language to talk about important topics. But um, maybe we try to explain um, a lot of different oppressions um, using language that we've learned in college. And when we try to come back to uh, our different communities who maybe don't speak the same academic language, it can be mm-hmm. difficult trying to uh, help them understand that. I think about that a lot in terms of like, intergenerational conversation right how do i explain to like my different families members or, or, or things like that um it's also a privilege too especially yeah. if you're coming from an academic background absolutely right so i think art for me has always been a really powerful way of building that bridge because whether you do dance or whether you do film or whether you sing or do do poetry i think it has an ability to speak at a different language um, that allows for understanding to happen at different levels than than um, than the facts. Um, not saying the facts aren't important, but like they're all pieces in in, mm-hmm. in our different movements. So um, I've always really appreciated how art has allowed for me to do that. Um, 
And the piece that I'm going to share is called Come Home. This is a piece that I wrote after I had just spent four months traveling in Southeast Asia, in Thailand and Laos, um, studying abroad during a program where I met a lot of Hmong people, actually. I stayed in a Hmong village for a little bit. But um, one thing I think a lot about is what does it mean to be um, part of a group of people who don't have like a, a political homeland of our own and like what does that mean does it matter I often think about this goes back to history keeping too like if all of us forget our language in the United States there isn't like a there isn't like a, a Hmong town somewhere that's gonna like have like a Hmong library where everyone there is required to speak Hmong and, the, and where Hmong <laughs> is a national language so so much of like our history keeping is from person to person or like keeping it within like the, the, the our, our culture and, and what it means to be Hmong alive with each other once mm -hmm. again I don't think that you need to speak Hmong in order to like embrace your Hmong identity um, but it's more of like what does it mean to be a people um, who have come from a history of 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 being kicked out of our of our countries and things like that so mm -hmm. that's where the concept of this poem comes from is me grappling with this concept of home right ultimately like where have Hmong people found home um, and how do we create home for each other outside of like the geographical borders outside mm -hmm. of like our language outside of like mm -hmm. a lot of the different things that like are difficult to claim so um, that is the poem um, I'm gonna pull it up real quick yeah thank you yeah. thank you for giving us a synopsis of and the context of the meaning of, behind that poem and also um, at least a lens of what the the complexities of the Hmong identity can look like. Absolutely, definitely. So I am ready. Sure, absolutely. Take it away. So once again, this poem was called Come Home. Eight responses to the phrase go back to where you came from. One, oh, you mean Minnesota, in which case, here I am. Two, oh, you mean where I'm really from? In which case, here I am. Three, if this is a reference to my ancestors, then you're gonna have to be a little bit more specific. How about trying go back to St. Paul or go back to Fresno, go back to Bun Vinay, go back to Long Gang, go back to Sian Quang. Upon taking my advice, also realize that you're not the first to give the command of return to point us in the opposite direction with the barrel of a pistol. Call me Mong before you call me American, because Hmong is the closest word I know to home. Four, do you ever wonder where you come from? Do you find comfort in vague memories of Alice Island? How many servings from the melting pot did it take for you to arrive at this conversation? Maybe you take pride in the Mayflower. Maybe you are an original American. Do you ever ask yourself if the land we stand on today once belonged to someone else? Do you ever ask yourself if maybe the land never belonged to any of us, if instead we belong to the land? Five, when I was younger, I made the journey back to Thailand, hoping to find our villages still dotting the sides of mountains, hoping to hear Katsia echoing throughout the valleys upon entering the house of an elder. He apologizes to me embarrassed that his youngest son could not introduce himself to me in our language tells me that if you want to grow up to be anything more than a farmer or a servant in this country you must learn to leave your language behind i want to tell this man that throughout my time here i've never felt so close to where i come from six my mother tells me 
that before I ever took in my first breath, I was an invisible spirit floating around the clouds waiting for a stomach that could paint me pink. My mother tells me that death is a slow journey back. That if not done carefully, we will wander the earth cursing those still living, but under the watchful eyes of our loved ones, we will always find our way home. Seven, for most of my life, I was convinced that the hummingbird did not possess a pair of feet, instead always existing in a state of mid-flight. How sad, I thought, to always be at the mercy of the wind, to be so close to the earth, yet own none of it. My time here has taught me how lucky the hummingbird to belong to the sky. Eight, I'm going. I'm going. Powerful. Thank you. Thank you. Very powerful. Thank you, so Thank you for sharing. And well, when you hear the words, to hear the question, where are you from? Where do you come from? It is very triggering to a lot of us because we're still trying to ask that same question ourselves. Yeah. From our own community mm-hmm. and from the adopted uh, community, community that we're living in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of this reinforcement of, of where do we really belong? Mm-hmm. Where do we fit in? Mm-hmm. And hearing these questions remind us over and over again of how we still straddle between our own otherness and not being enough for our own family's community, for the American community that we're in. So it's kind of like this purgatory that we're in, right? Yeah. Um, and that's what that's that was like a takeaway for me when I heard your poem and this burden that you're taking on trying to reconcile between these two different worlds and how do you make how do you make use of that history that you're given uh, especially when your family is forced out um, Mm -hmm. by genocide by terror and militarism so (coughs) excuse me there so in writing that poem what was your own uh, I know you've given it a synopsis, but what was your own feelings after writing that poem? And um, what do you what do you ask yourself when you hear these questions? Absolutely. Um, one really, as you described, like this concept of like in betweenness of like purgatory of being in between like like Western American culture and like the tradition and history of my parents. I mean, that's a, that's such a um, a thread that ties so many different refugee communities together. And I think when I was writing that poem, I know that a lot of of of, of our our community is we're very hungry and 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 interested in this concept of home. Um, some of us are interested in a geographic, political, like concept of home of like we need to create a homeland and like some part of the world so that we can claim it as our own. Um, and that, that's not necessarily something that I'm interested in. But what I what I was more interested in was like, how do we re-understand home as like a, rather than a place, but like, how do we understand our home as like a verb? How do we create home everywhere we stand? Like, how do we create home within the communities that we exist in, that, 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 we, that we move, that we, that we transform, that we grow with? Um, and that was sort of the biggest lesson that I took away from my own poem. Um, because for me, it's not a, this concept of amongness is not not tied to a geographical place, and that was my big takeaway from being in, in Thailand and Laos. Even as, as I was describing my poem, um, so many of 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 Hmong folks, we 
to put it any other way, we romanticize Thailand and Laos as this place where our culture lives, where it's the most rich, where we remember our language, where we live most traditionally. Uh, but spending my time there was a really stuck reminder of the fact that like we have to define our Mongness everywhere we go. Mm -hmm. Even my Hmong brothers and sisters and 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 kin in, in Thailand, um, they're facing so many issues of assimilation and trying to find ways to keep their culture alive in this place that I always assumed was like our homeland. So it was like a reminder of like Kevin, like home is a verb, like home is like is where I'm standing right now and like what I'm doing to create that. So that was probably the biggest thing that that, that I took from 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 my, my time abroad, but also from, from from creating that poem was yeah. just this hunger to, to create home. Yeah. You know, I think another thing I want to add is home is also about safety, uh, about mm -hmm. about having a place where you don't have your culture, mm -hmm. your own identity erased, right? And that, that, I mean, that's why that's the importance of being in a home is being in a place where your own culture identities are not being taken away. Mm -hmm. And it is often home is a very fluid thing, uh, yeah. especially in the Hmong community, Laos community, and uh, for all the refugee communities here, it's a very fluid uh, thing that uh, transforms itself, especially um, in other communities as younger generations are starting to go into urban enclaves and away mm -hmm. from rural communities. I know like in the Southeast Asian community in the in the deep south, like in Alabama, New Orleans, they're moving away to bigger cities. So there's certain communities that are also disappearing, and that old that concept of home there is starting to disappear. Yeah. So I, I I thank you for sharing uh, and engaging in this discussion, especially in concept of what home is. Yeah, and and one other thing that I wanted to jump in real quick too is. Um, this concept of the in-betweenness as, as a second generation Hmong person, I think a lot about this in-betweenness um, of like, I know a lot of, of, of my friends, my family struggle with that. Like I got to be like 100% Hmong or like mm -hmm. I'm done with like Hmongness. Like I'm in, I'm in America. I'm ready to assimilate. And it's just like, maybe it's seen as like between like a rock and a hard place of like between these different things. And I think as much as, it is a struggle that I recognize. I think there's a lot of beauty to it too, of like mm -hmm. the in-between space that we inhabit, not just this in-between space, but like this third space entirely. We're able to like create our own language. Um, we're able to like interact with the world. We're able to create space for, for, for this place in our history um, in such really unique, innovative and like artful ways. Um, like the concept of like Monglish, um, yeah. Like, I, it's just very, I, I often think about like different artifacts, right? Like I think about growing up watching things like, um, like, like watching Toy Story dubbed in Hmong. And I'm like, this is like such a interesting, like amalgamation and, of like different things. And no Clint Eastwood movies. Yes. <laughs> F him. So. Yes, absolutely. F so. Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Sorry to bring that name up. So. <laughs> most definitely so there there's like a set of experiences that like so many of 1.5 second gen like refugees specifically Hmong kids like that we we grew up and really have been indemnified into like our like our histories that are so important I think when you think about history right it's like it's just sort of what happened in the past and I'm always like reminded like 
like the fact that I I did that, like we 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 mixed our culture, or not even mixed, that like we created our own culture during during that time. Um, that's something like worth recognizing, worth remembering, because that was our way of surviving and thriving while being in between these two systems that at times didn't understand us and at times wanted to tear us apart. Like this is, was how we survived and we stay authentic to ourselves. Mm. So, and also in summary, uh, what do you hope to do as you continue to learn more about your family's history and you as a Hmong American and how do you plan to use your art to, uh, to explore that and what could it look like for you and as a collaborator with other uh, Hmong or Southeast Asian American artists? Yeah. Um, I think one thing that I really, really value is using art to make, to help folks understand how complex the Hmong identity is. I often, when, when people ask like, what is Hmong? Like I want the answer to be as long as possible. I want it to be very, very complex. Um, and also to recognize like the, 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 the Hmong folks who are at the margins of the margins, like our queer folks, our trans folks, our poor folks, folks like with disabilities, like our like super young folks or like super OGs, like everyone in between, like not just like as we talked about before, like not just uplifting like these, this concept of like the model minority within the Hmong community of people who are making it, who are like the good Hmong or whatever, but like using art to really explore the complexity of the Hmong identity it has always been really really important for me yeah that's amazing and um also like um, and kind of like wrapping up here so what would you like to tell your 10 year old self wow um that's a great question i've started asking that question recently on some of the other episodes so yeah and i feel yeah. like it just kind of turns back to where it started for you uh-huh that's, a, that's such a great question. Um, I think I would tell my 10-year-old self that it's okay to feel afraid. I know that fear is something that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, it's it's okay to recognize that uh, that 10-year-old me, that you feel afraid right now, that like you feel alone or like lost. Um, but it's okay to feel courage too. It's okay to feel confident in the things that you do and, the, and w w what you're good at. I know that a lot for me, to, like fear and anxiety has become like a home for me where like it's something familiar. And I think I would tell my 10 year old self, like it's okay to find like um, a home and courage and, and having my voice heard. Um, and it's okay to be weird and to like make friends and to like connect with other people. Cause I know that's something that I struggled a lot with as, as a 10 year old. Um, it's 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 okay to like create and to share and like my voice is is important um i think those are all things that i would have really really wished i heard as a 10 year old that's great advice uh, to your 10 year old self and and also another thing is uh where can we find your work and what are you looking to do this year absolutely i'm not a very good freelance artist um i don't have like a portfolio or a website somewhere i don't have like my own youtube channel or like my own instagram or anything like that something I'm working on very, very diligently. And I think that goes into like, even my own like perception of myself as an artist of like not wanting to like put myself in the limelight or like- I get like, it. Put my own voice out there and be like, hey, yeah. like this is my creation. Uh, so I think that's something I've been struggling a lot because I'm very proud of my work, but to like say that and to claim it as like part of my identity has been difficult at times. Um, mm -hmm. To be like, hey, like come check out what I'm doing. What I'm doing is worthwhile if you seeing or even like paying 
yeah. uh, to, to support. So um, at the time, like if, if you're interested in checking out some of the work that I do, uh, just like Google me or uh, like Kevin Yang and like that's oh, what I did. Oh yeah, that's what I did, and I found some. <laughs> I found a lot of rich material. So yeah, that's the thing too. There are a lot of people who like believe in me, which is super cool. But at times, yeah. like I struggle with believing in myself. Um, so that's sort of where I'm at as an artist. Um, but um, that will be happening soon. Um, also, I'm, I'm on Facebook. Um, I, I don't know, just find me <laughs> and reach out to me. You don't know how many emails I've received and things like that and Facebook messages and things like that. I mean, if, if, if you're interested in connecting more, I really appreciate those like person to person things. Um, and I'm beginning to explore what it means to like share my work with the rest of the world. Yeah. And what do you recall? What are you, what are you planning to do this year as far as like projects or any, anything like in the uh, horizon? Yeah. So I, there's a couple of things I'm really excited for. I'm actually working on my first longer form documentary um, about the spoken word community in the Twin Cities. So it's through a mm -hmm. fellowship through an organization called St. Paul Neighborhood Network based out of the, uh, of the Twin Cities right now, who, who support a, just really amazing emerging documentary filmmakers. So that's something that um, I've been working on for a while, um, something I'm very, very excited for. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing. And I wish you so much the best of of uh, success in your uh, projects and also in continuing your writing and uh, amplifying uh, your own art to other communities, especially among uh, the Hmong community, I should say. I want to say thank you so much for being on to today and uh, and for really sharing your stories uh, with us. So really want to really want to say how honored I am to have you on. I, I really appreciate it, Randy. I, I really appreciate being on your story and just hearing the, the multiple other narratives that are a part of your story too. I have a question for you. Yes, go how ahead. How do you like? How do you like your bun me? You know what? <laughs> uh, oh, that's a good question. I've never been asked that question. So, I do like pate. Okay. I know it's like it's like the goose chop up goose liver. I mean, I know people think it's horribly gross, but I love it. I don't care what y'all think. Um, I do like to have the cilantro, the sliced cucumbers, the pickled carrots. Um, my favorite one is the hewe, which is the roasted pork. Mm -hmm. There's a one place in Chicago called uh, New Lan. Uh, it's amazing. I, it's like a mom and pop place. There's two locations there and they're run by older uh, Vietnamese women and they're so adorable and oh. you should support them so much. Um, I do like the ha ones with ham on it too and uh, the pork rolls, but yeah, the, the one with the roasted pork is delicious. Uh, what about you? Do you have a particular yeah, uh, there's, uh, there's a there's a shop in, in in Minneapolis. It's called Lou's Sandwiches, oh. and they don't do like traditional bun me. I think there's a lot of different people who are doing a lot of different takes on bun me. I was a vegetarian for the very longest time, mm. and they had this bun me that was like um, curry tofu, and of oh, course, like okay. they like a lot of the, the typical fixings and things like that. But it was just such an amazing one. I don't put jalapenos in mine. I'm a jalapeno like baby. It's like a bomb for me. So like I I don't mess around with jalapeno a lot. I but. used to hate jalapenos growing up, and now as I've gotten older, it's like bring it on, baby. That's I I can't. I I'm I'm such a spice baby. But oh. yeah, that 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 would probably be be my favorite. I mean, the classic bummy is, is is delicious too. But I really appreciate Lou's vegetarian curry mm. tofu take on it. I'll have to check it out because I've had tofu bummy sandwiches before. I mean, you can get them at Bali, uh, which is like in the Argyle uh, strip there too. And I know that they've kind of like modernized that place the past decade because back in the day it used to be like a hole in the wall 
and I'm a very nostalgic person, and so it's hard for me to see it the way it is now. I mean, I'm not trying to knock on them because I do, I do go there whenever I can, if mm-hmm. uh, if Newland's not there for me. Um, but no, yeah, thanks for asking that question. I think it's a Definitely. very, it's a very yeah. important question too. It also tells me of my own love of that sandwich. Absolutely. Yes. Well, Great. thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, and uh, we, yeah, good luck, and we'll uh, keep an eye on you. Absolutely. Appreciate it, Randy. Hope you have a good one. Thank you.